I'm Lucy, and this week I'll be looking at Kate Marsden. In the late 19th century, she travelled to Siberia to help lepers, wrote about it, and became the subject of scandal on three separate continents. That's this week on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. Kate Marsden was born and died in London, but in the intervening decades, she travelled thousands of miles in her efforts to help lepers, from London to the Russian steppes and back. That Marsden's remarkable career as nurse, missionary, and explorer should have ended up as a historical footnote is itself noteworthy. This week, I'll be talking about how Marsden tried to negotiate the challenges of a transitional moment in the history of medicine, and late 19th century nervousness about women, especially ladies, who made themselves conspicuous by activities in the public sphere. Marsden herself, in her memoir, which is fabulously titled On Sledge and Horseback to Outcast Siberian Lepers, said that the first step of her career was presentation at court in 1890, but obviously there are a lot of steps before that. Kate Marsden was born in 1859, the eighth and youngest child of a solicitor, after her father's death, when she was 16, she began nursing training at the Tottenham Hospital, later the Prince of Wales General Hospital. At the age of 18, she was a volunteer to go to Bulgaria to nurse Russian soldiers. From 1878 to 84, she then held a variety of nursing posts, before moving all the way to New Zealand to nurse a sister who was ill with tuberculosis. Later, she became Lady Superintendent, sick, this was her official title, of the Wellington Hospital, and was instrumental in setting up the first New Zealand branch of the St John's Ambulance Brigade. Now, note that this is just a few decades after the activities of Florence Nightingale, so this is still a historical moment where the professionalization of nursing is ongoing, and the ways in which medicine was practiced and accessed were changing rapidly, and so Marston was really a pioneer in working on the forefront of those changes. In Nelson, New Zealand, she heard of Molokai, the famous leper colony where Father Damien worked. Her application to serve there was turned down due to the high number of zealous applicants. Undaunted by this setback, she applied to work with lepers in British India and returned to England with this plan in mind. Marsden was really dedicated to the idea specifically of working with lepers. One may even say that she felt called to do it and on receiving invitation from the Russian Red Cross to receive in Moscow a medal for her earlier war work, she decided to go to the Siberian lepers instead. Now, just a side note on the vocabulary of lepers and leprosy. Because of the pejorative meanings and associations that attached themselves to these terms over the course of centuries in the modern period, it is now standard use to refer to the skin condition in either its tuberculoid or lepratus forms as Hansen's disease. The medical name itself honours the Norwegian Gerhard Amor Hansen, who identified Mycobacterium leprae as the cause of the disease in 1873, so just before Martin was undertaking her work. This was a time when microscope technology too was rapidly developing, but that will have to wait for another podcast. The cutting-edge Norwegian leper hospitals are referred to several times in Marsden's own work. And I'll be following Marsden and her audience in calling the Siberian 
outcasts, lepers, since the narrative takes place mere decades after the discovery of the disease's bacterial identity, and the evidence in her memoir indicates that the diagnosed sick, while they may or may not have suffered from Hansen's disease, were treated, certainly, as lepers, with the social penalties the term customarily implies. Now, at this interesting juncture in medical history, we see Marsden in correspondence with nuns, with dermatological societies, with civic and ecclesiastical authorities, all of whom had interest and influence in the fate of the Siberian lepers. She dedicates her memoir to Queen Victoria, uh, the most queenly woman and the most womanly queen, she says, for her patronage in assisting Marsden's work. She is very concerned to authenticate herself. Uh, Marsden goes to the trouble of also reprinting the letter received from the Russian Empress, enabling her to access the Russian interior and receive official help. She also reprints a telegram from the Empress, and as the preface's grand finale, a letter of blessing from Florence Nightingale. Marsden also deliberately calls attention to the fact that she was writing at a time when Anglo-Russian relations were strained to say the least. Russia was Britain's greatest imperial rival, and the two powers had been at war in the Crimea, where Florence Nightingale served, and in the First and Second Anglo-Afghan Wars. The Second Anglo-Afghan War may be known to some of you as, of course, Dr. Watson's War. Uh, Marsden's experience of volunteering was in what she calls the Russo-Turkish War. There were many of these, <laughs> In short, we can't go into that here either, but Marsden means the one in 1877 to 78. And she does not skate over the fact that in going to the Siberian lepers, she is venturing deep into the territory of an empire that is ostensibly at odds with her own, which makes it the more impressive that she is successful in obtaining the patronage of the English and Russian imperial authorities alike. In the preface to Marsden's memoirs, she is also interested in making explicit some of her goals. She is interested in promoting her lecture tour, uh, which she plans on undertaking in England and in the Americas, like Dickens and other celebrated authors of the time. She wishes to do this in order to continue funding for the hospitals and medical centers which are needed in Siberia. And she also mentions, almost as an aside, that she does so promoting temperance principles. Uh, she insists that she did not take any alcohol on her journey and that this was not a drawback but rather essential to her physical survival in the cold climates of Siberia. Given the reputation of the local vodka, this is indeed a feat um, perhaps rendered even more impressive. She also uh, gives an early instance of sponsorship in describing her Jaeger clothing, uh, giving details of the outfit, as she says, to assist the lady tourist. This is one of many moments where Marsden appears to anticipate and perhaps slightly to mock uh, an influx of fashionable uh, attempts to duplicate her efforts by middle-class women. More on that later. Um, for Marsden, these somely coyly described garments are long underwear. While we may associate Jaeger with upscale twin sets and Audrey Hepburn, the brand was founded in 1884, named after Gustav Jaeger, a zoologist who promoted the use of natural animal fibers in clothing. 
bundled then in her Jaeger clothing and in so many layers of rugs and furs that she couldn't move and had to be bodily lifted into the sledge in which she began her journey, Marsden set out across Russia. Uh, she describes her work in ways that sometimes appear paradoxical, even as she dwells in exquisite detail on the physical hardships endured and the bureaucratic and physical obstacles encountered, she also describes the work she does as essentially women's work. Uh, she describes prison work, the provision of supplemental food and care, and moral teaching, which she offers in prisons as she travels towards the, the outpost which she seeks, as, quote, a mission that only the noblest, bravest, and purest in the land should do. Oh, dear Russian ladies, exclaims Marsden, here is work for you. It is indeed woman's work, unquote. And this is only one of many places in which Marsden seems concerned to assert the suitability of her specifically undertaking this task as a middle-class woman from London. She says there is nothing unsuitable about her journey on sledge and horseback into what she calls the uncivilized regions of the world. Um, she writes not only trying to speak against the, the prejudices of Victorian society, but also herself participating in many of them. She, she writes within a model of progress and obstacles to progress. The true Siberians, for instance, whom she encounters, remind her very much of the people she describes as British colonials. Uh, their values are honesty, uprightness, and loyalty. Marsden further describes the residents of Siberia as being natives in a semi-barbarous state, since civilization, uh, very much in quotation marks, had only arrived recently. In journeying into these um, strange and uncouth territories, Marsden saw herself as undertaking not only a Christian mission, which she very much emphasizes, that undertaking these hardships is something she does inspired by religious zeal and strengthened by it, but also seeking medical research. Even in her preface, she speaks of going to seek a secret herb in Siberia, which is rumored to cure leprosy. Uh, there are parallels which we can see in Sherlock Holmes and beyond, that the mixture of tradition and what we would recognize as scientific medical research today are still very running very much in parallel. Moreover, at this juncture, medical research and medical progress, um, as it was hailed, were social dramas, keenly followed not just by the readers of The Lancet and similar publications, but by all of educated, literate, upper-middle-class society. Also, they were often, and as indeed are still, dependent on personal initiative and funding, despite the proliferation of fine teaching hospitals throughout Europe. So Marsden writes uh, on a metaphorical as well as on a literal frontier. As she describes the process of travel in a sledge, across ice, across burning forests, um, through the most remarkable conditions, she offers advice curiously calculated to deflect criticism. She offers a mixture of describing her the quaint frocks and tunics of those she encounters, and offers deliberate genre painting in words. 
she offers many sort of expected pictures of helpless, oppressed, and suitably grateful peasants, of corrupt petty officials, of the provision of edifying sermons and some basic medical care for the underserved inhabitants of the rural districts through which she goes from her and her companions, which she sums up rather charmingly as tea and sugar and little gospels. Eventually, of course, she arrives with a swelling of the heart, she says, which she cannot adequately describe, at the remote settlement of the Siberian lepers. Now, this raises the question, always interesting in the history of leprosy, of what leprosy was understood to be and how reactions to it were formed. Marsden asserts that the Siberian lepers were expelled from their communities as soon as the disease was discovered. But she also gives examples of men, women, and children who were successful in hiding the disease, which raises the question of what, for them, leprosy, in quotation marks, was and how it was diagnosed. Marsden herself gives an example of deliberate false diagnosis in order to gain control over property. Such cases, while rare, are known for the pre-modern period as well. More unusually, Marsden reports leper being used in Siberia as a swear word, and the only other instance I know of of this is in one law from the 7th century. She also reports the belief that the disease, unlike others which might be the result of bad luck or divine chastisement, was sent from the devil. And for that, I know no precise parallel. Now, community provisions for the lepers of Siberia are glossed by Marsden as evidence of neglect. They could also, however, be interpreted as evidence of concern, of belief in the necessity of quarantine and isolation. She describes the huts in which they live as squalid and says, oh, people only visit them briefly to bring them food at irregular intervals, sometimes daily, sometimes several times a week. And there is much that we simply cannot reconstruct about the attitudes or expectations of those who undertook such visits or the lepers themselves. Although Marsden does give some examples, certainly, of those who found the experience psychologically traumatizing. While not wishing to minimize the conditions, because they were obviously improved by the agency of Marsden herself and of those whom she enlisted in support, her own vocabulary raises the question of how different the condition of the lepers was from those of anyone else in the impoverished rural villages. Uh, she describes the leper huts as dreadful hovels, uh, but she uses similar language for the places where she and her party passed the nights over the thousands of miles that they spent getting there. Of course, she also says, I beg the reader to understand that some of the worst details are too repulsive to write about. So there is much which we may not know, and it is certain that the ecclesiastical and civic leaders of Siberia expressed enthusiasm for Marsden's project, and, rather touchingly, she is commemorated in a plaque outside Vilnius, where she was instrumental in founding a leper hospital. Some of the most sensational details of her memoir, when she had returned from her preliminary journey, both to assess the number of the lepers and their condition and to set the process of constructing facilities for them in motion, uh, some of her most sensational details 
have been confirmed by scientific report, as when she recounts the experience of driving through a Siberian forest where the very soil was afire. The soil in that part of the world is very peaty, and so when it catches fire, the phenomenon does match Marsden's descriptions. Her travels themselves, undertaken over extraordinary distance and under extraordinary circumstances, were singled out for distinction by the Royal Geographical Society, although not without opposition from some of the fellows. Dorothy Middleton has noted that Marsden was added to the society as one of a group of, quote, well-qualified ladies, and that this motion was delayed by a year as a result of protest from a group of fellows who objected to well-qualified ladies being admitted to the society that included such intrepid explorers as Shackleton. The women of Marsden's 1892 cohort were the first to be admitted to the society. Curiously enough, it does not seem to be such learned and perhaps hidebound traditionalists whom Marsden addresses in her emphasis of the very real hardships born. She rather seems to be concerned with convincing dilettantes that hers is serious work as well as work worth doing. In attempting to do this, she was not entirely successful. As she herself notes, all kinds of rumours were set afloat, and she says that since the goals of her journey were thousands of miles away from all civilization, anyone might easily think that her account was, quote, perhaps only a traveler's tale and somewhat exaggerated, unquote. Now, this raises the question, what happens when or if an author's self-presentation or self-construction in a narrative are refused by the audience of the text? For Monica Anderson, this is a question about the boundaries of legitimate, acceptable self-presentation in late 19th century British society. Almost 30 years later, Marsden was brought to write My Mission in Siberia, A Vindication. But in the interim, she struggled with attacks which were numerous and vitriolic. Attacks on the veracity of her writing, doubts that she had gone where she had gone and done what she had said she had done, they were viciously personal. And there are so many parallels with the work of recent women authors that I got exhausted just thinking about which would be most apt. Fill in your woman author of choice. Marsden's readers needed to decide what Marsden meant by telling all the stories that she did about Siberian lepers and her journeys to them. The readers' moralizing judgments, as Elizabeth Bagent has noted, were not only inescapable, but inescapably gendered. And in my view, the very uncertainty, the defensiveness, the rhetorical too-muchness of Marsden's account seemed to indicate that she knew that this readerly responsibility of making and deciding on meaning might prove heavy and the decision difficult. It was alleged in the aftermath of her memoirs publication that Marsden was not just a travel liar, a liar about travel, but a traveling liar, a liar who merely coincidentally travels. Accusations and suspicions of espionage were addressed explicitly by Marsden, but of course it does not exactly induce confidence to be told, oh no, I was absolutely not a Russian spy. Uh, she was also rumoured to be, in Bajant's memorable phrase, a lesbian and or the mistress of a Russian general while masquerading as a pure Christian woman. After a flurry of accusations along these lines in newspapers from 
Australia to the US in 1893 and 94, Marsden converted to Catholicism and founded the St. Francis Leper Guild in 1895. The correlation between these events is uncertain, but Marsden's conversion is the next concrete thing that is known of her. Little is known about her conversion process, but the process itself was a remarkable social step in late Victorian England, where respectability was still firmly tied to the C of E, or Church of England. One of the facts about Marsden's mission to the Siberian lepers that she herself singled out as exceptional was the cooperation of Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox clergy and laity in facilitating it. Having converted, Marsden served the guild for four years, but without being terribly effectual in her fundraising. She withdrew temporarily in response to the scandal about her memoirs, but swiftly resumed her duties after being officially blessed by the Pope. When she finally did withdraw, it was to reside in a succession of cities in the northeastern US around the turn of the century, for reasons that are unclear. And at some point after 1904, she returned to England to live with two sisters, Emily and Alice Norris. And this, curiously, is how Marsden's narrative peters out. In her later life, she does write a vindicating memoir. The efforts which she kickstarted in Russia did continue. A leper hospital was founded in remote Siberia. Societies were set up. Nuns and dermatologists became active in both assessing the numbers of lepers and setting up agencies to help them. But Marsden herself seems to have left the experienced in some measure behind, perhaps traumatized by the hostile reaction to it. We are left with a picture that is incomplete. We are left with many areas in Marsden's life where we don't and can't know what happened, or really how she experienced it. What is clear is that Marsden was a woman of strong, even commanding personality, a quality that is often remarked on and which may have worked against her, as she was certainly not fitting neatly into uh, late Victorian ideas of womanhood. She was of remarkable stamina, but she may have struggled herself with the question of how to legitimize herself to a suspicious audience and how to choose a rhetorical strategy to explain actions which she was inspired to do, which she felt called to do, but which did not fit neatly into Victorian social norms. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.